0: Hello, I'm Ken, and this is Teach Medieval. And on today's episode, I am once again extremely excited to be welcoming back Associate Professor Nicholas Morton. Hello, Nick.
1: Hi, Ken. It's nice to be
0: here. Nicholas is Associate Professor of History at Nottingham Trent University, the co-editor of the forthcoming Global Histories Before Globalisation book series, and the author of a number of key texts on the Crusades, including the medieval military orders 1120 to 1314 and Encountering Islam on the First Crusade. Now, before we begin, I do want to take a second to remind you that this episode is actually episode three of a larger mini-series of three on the topic of Urban the Second and the First Crusade. So if you haven't listened to episodes one and two yet, please go and do so now, and then come back and rejoin us here when you're ready. So, now that we've got that put out of the way, Nick, let's begin, shall we? Absolutely. Right, so Nick, the topic for this third and final episode is the role played by Urban's own religious conviction in his decision to call the First Crusade. Was the Crusade actually a primarily spiritual endeavour designed to save the souls of thousands whilst benefiting Christendom as a whole? But before we get into that, why don't we just take a second to look at the context in which Urban is operating? Because the late 11th century, Western Europe was a powerfully religious place, wasn't it? I mean, in what ways? How how central was the church and how central was Christianity to everyday life?
1: So in Western Christendom at this time, the vast majority of the population were Catholic Christian. Mm-hmm. There are some Jewish communities in various areas, a, a small number of um, Muslim communities on so the Christendom's southern borders, and those would grow over time, and perhaps some pagan presence in the north. But yes, overwhelmingly, Western Christendom was Catholic Christian at this time. And I think probably one of the hardest things that people encounter when trying to get to grips with understanding Western Christendom at this time is just how deeply felt those religious beliefs were, just how much they permeate society. Yeah. Your week, your month, your year, they are structured according to religious festivals, your life. Is structured from the various main waypoints, whether that's baptism or marriage or religious orders, some people, Christianity structures the totality of your life. And it is intrinsic to the beliefs and actions of people on a daily basis. And I think that if you can if you can understand that, if you can get your head around that, that is a very good starting point for trying to understand people at this at this point in history on their own terms.
0: Yeah. So let's consider then whether uh, a genuine deep-rooted piety on Urban's part may have been the main reason that he decided to call the First Crusade. Uh, We're going to divide this conversation just like the last two times into two halves. Firstly, I'd like us to discuss the evidence one might put forward if we were going to argue that Urban's personal faith really was the main reason he decided to call this crusade. And then once that's done, we'll turn the tables again and we'll ask ourselves whether there are any reasons to doubt that. So here we go. Let's consider the evidence in favour. Firstly, let's look more deeply at this notion of sin uh, and the fact that its widespread existence in Western Europe at this time may have been exercising urban to some considerable extent. I mean, would it be fair to say that Europe in the 11th century, as well as being a deeply devout place, was also a violent place, Nick?
1: Very violent, yes. And the violence took place on a number of levels. You've got the sort of um, the rivalries and wars between kings and queens and dukes and high-level violence, if you like. Mm-hmm. You've got then got a fair amount of low-level violence between knightly families, battles and skirmishes involving no more than a few dozen soldiers on either side. Mm-hmm. And then, because there's not a great, it's not possible for rulers at this time to exert a great deal of law and order. You've therefore got a fair amount of violent crime as well. So violence can occur in a number of Context at a number of different levels and the church sees all of this or almost all of this as a big problem yeah
0: so increasingly uh what were western christians obsessed with uh what were they always uh, told to seek
1: so yes there is a, a there is a, an acute sense acute consciousness of sin in this here not just sin associated with violence but sin associated with the whole range of vices as understood at the time yeah And so one of the church's main preoccupations is encouraging people to seek forgiveness and freedom from those sins, in large part, so that when they die, they can have every chance of going to heaven. And certainly the church sees as its primary goal, really, to to lead as many people through their lives in such a way that when they die, they will go to heaven. That is the church's number one objective. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's his that's his purpose. Uh, and so, do we see a genuine concern on Urban's behalf uh, with the levels of violence? I mean, does he refer to it in the accounts of his speeches? Does he refer to it in his letters?
1: To some extent, um, there's one, one account of Urban's speech, at Claremore, for example, that which makes reference to infighting among knightly families. I, I think the only audience he has in mind is probably the southern French aristocracy. But here is an area where you have a lot of low level low and middle level violence between rival villages, towns, aristocratic families fighting out their various vendettas. Mm -hmm. And this is a really big problem for Urban and for Urban's predecessors. This has been a preoccupation of the church for well over a century by this stage, trying to stop these people fighting. Yeah. Now they're fighting based on their interests and rivalries and concerns and doubtless each of these factions thought that they had the moral high ground but they're still fighting each other so what the church tries to do is to institute things called the peace or the truce of god yeah and these are ways to try and curb the fighting and that includes things like raising peace militias who are there to forcibly break apart participants it means instituting certain days in the week where no one's allowed to fight, so the church realises it can't stop them fighting, but at least it can stop them fighting on certain days, so that your average farming family can at least look after their crops rather than constantly living in fear of when the next raiding party's going to come over the hill. Yeah. But the main point is that these attempts to curb the violence are not particularly successful.
0: Right, yeah. And so you might argue that by calling a crusade and offering a full indulgence for participation in said crusade, Here's an opportunity for Urban to save tens of thousands of souls all at once in a way that the peace movement has thus far failed to do.
1: Well, this is one of the possible motives that was going through Urban's head when he launched the Crusade, Crusade, certainly. Was he simply trying to displace the violent groups of people from Western Christendom and send them off on a military expedition that he he at least deemed to be meritorious? And in doing so, not only would he be sparing the people who would have been victimized by those groups in Western Christendom. But he was sending these knights and soldiers off on an expedition, which he told them would lead them to salvation and for which he offered a full indulgence, which basically means that any sin, a participating knight might confess the act of going on crusade, whether the knight came back from that crusade or not, those sins or the impact of those sins would be wiped clean. And so Urban, in a sense, you could see that Urban was trying, according to his own principles and values, to try and save both those knights and the people they would would potentially have victimized back in their home territories. Yeah.
0: So let's consider then for a moment the ultimate goal of this uh, crusade that Urban comes up with, the reclamation of the holy city of Jerusalem. Why was that, you know, such a such a prominent target, um, such an important city to Christians?
1: OK, so I mean, we can go back to the Bible and talk about Jerusalem's significance in both the Old and New Testament, Jerusalem's um, significance in the life of Jesus, Um and obviously, this is the location of the crucifixion, or just outside the walls of Jerusalem, is the location of the of the crucifixion, among various other key events in Jesus's life. So, Jerusalem's always had a had an enormous significance in Christianity. Of course, it has. Yes. But during the 11th century, there is a rising Jerusalem-centeredness to many strands in the theological and spirituality of Western Christendom. Mm-hmm pilgrims begin to take take the road for jerusalem or indeed take ship for jerusalem in increasing numbers yeah and sometimes these pilgrim parties are very large the size of small armies in 1064 a german pilgrimage went to jerusalem with thousands of participants now they weren't going as an act of war they were going as an act of pilgrimage but it's interesting to see that numbers on that scale are heading east yeah And so there is this rising vein in the the, the theological and spiritual movements of this era that is placing Jerusalem at the epicentre of people's thinking. Some people went on on pilgrimage to Jerusalem many times in their life. That's how deep the commitment was in some cases.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we can see this desire very explicitly and repeatedly in the accounts of his speech at Clermont. And we can see this desire to reclaim the city in his own letters that he wrote.
1: Indeed. And then one, of, one another factor that has been advanced by some historians for Urban's launch of the crusade is the desire to protect and open up pilgrim routes going to Jerusalem. Yeah, because the Jerusalem area directly before the first crusade, it's a very troubled area. There's a big war being fought between the Seljuk Sultanate, which controls much of central and northern Syria, and then territories to the east going all the way back to the borders of the Central Asian steppe. And then the other side of the border, which is just the other side of Jerusalem, basically, have that Empire that controls Egypt and parts of the coastal region of Syria. And they fight over Jerusalem time and again in the 1070s, particularly. Yes. So Jerusalem's a war zone. Now, we do hear about pilgrim parties reaching Jerusalem and the Fatimid authorities who controlled Jerusalem for much of this period fully permitted this. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself how much protection could the Fatimids actually exert given that Jerusalem is right on the frontier on this very active conflict with the Seljuk Turks. And given that this is a war zone, it's not just the two combatant parties who make this a dangerous area for the pilgrims to pass through. Given the disorder of the area, there's also stories of bandits and Bedouin groups who also make the area very disturbed. And the 1064 pilgrimage that I mentioned, that came under attack um, during its journey. Yes. Now, that's not to say it was a deliberate attack on pilgrims because they were pilgrims. It's perfectly possible to explain that in terms of just the sheer chaos of this area as it is being repeatedly fought over by various different factions.
0: Right, so there we go. That's the case in favour of the odd. That religious conviction really was the main reason that Urban II called the First Crusade in 1095. As Nica so clearly laid out for us, one, Western Europe at this time was riven by violence at all levels, and earlier attempts by the church to curtail it through the peace movement had largely failed. Calling his crusade and redirecting the Knights of Europe's aggressive tendencies towards a meritorious goal in the East gave Urban the opportunity to reduce that violence, whilst also fulfilling his primary mission of saving souls on a hitherto unprecedented scale. And two, Westerners' focus on Jerusalem had been increasing in recent decades, and yet it still remained out of Christian hands and planted firmly in a volatile part of the world. Calling his crusade gave Urban the chance to take the holy city back under Christian possession and thereby open it up to safe and increased pilgrimage and place it firmly at the heart of the Christian consciousness where he believed it belonged. But Nick, as an esteemed academic and renowned expert in your field, you will be more than well aware that every historian's favourite word is...
1: Let's go for however this time. Fantastic.
0: It's now time to consider the evidence against... So, Nick, let's look more closely at these claims of uh, selfless piety. I mean, are we being a little naive here this time? Uh, Are we in danger of taking Urban's claims at face value? Look, would a man of Urban's background and Urban's vision have been blind to the political advantages of summoning a crusade and to the political advantages of reclaiming the holy city?
1: Yes. Okay. So let's start, as you said, let's play the other side of the argument. Let's let's look at this from a more cynical perspective. Yeah. And certainly, Urban had a lot to gain from successful completion of the of the crusade. Although, as I've mentioned previously, we do have to caveat that with just how enormously unlikely it was that Urban's campaign would ultimately carry out what it did carry out.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It's not common for people to march thousands of miles and take and hold a city deep within an um another civilization's territory. Yeah. But nonetheless, if Urban did hope, well, presumably he hoped the crusade would succeed from the moment he launched it, he did have a great deal to gain. Yeah. Shoring up his own political position would have been one of one one possible advantage for him. Yeah. Gaining the upper hand in the ongoing conflict with the German Emperor would have been another. Yeah. Of course, he wouldn't have been directly addressing the German emperor by uh, launching the, what would become the first crusade. But nonetheless, it would certainly give him a great considerable bolster to his authority and his power in Western Christendom that he was able to do that. Yeah. So we could be cynical from those perspectives. Although we also have to add into that particular mix the fact that the things I've just detailed, Urban shoring up his own position, urban getting the upper hand against the emperor were also very much church objectives too at this time
0: well yeah exactly and do we suspect uh that one of the initial aims was to establish a papal state based around the holy city i mean it didn't come to fruition but do we have evidence that that was maybe the original ambition
1: shortly after the crusaders took jerusalem the archbishop of pisa called Damebert arrived mm-hmm. yes and he does seem to have played with the idea of trying to turn Jerusalem into a theocracy. But actually, that ambition didn't last for very long. And Urban didn't push it. And he, Well, by this time, actually, it wasn't Urban. It was his um, successor, Pascal. Um, Pope Pascal didn't push that either. Yeah. So whether there was an ambition to create Jerusalem as a papal state, difficult to say, but certainly once it became clear that wasn't the direction of travel for what would become the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the papacy didn't try and push that agenda too hard. One of the imponderables in this is that the papal legate, so the pope's main representative on the crusade, was called Adamar of Puy, and he seems to have been very, very, very well liked and respected within the crusading army but he died during the siege of Antioch. Now what he might have wished to achieve had he reached Jerusalem we don't know Yeah, but there's nothing really to suggest that the crusade leaders felt that this is something he might do although that may simply have been because he never actually made it to Jerusalem.
0: So there you go, that's the case against the argument, the religious conviction was the main reason that Urban II called the First Crusade in 1095. As Nick has once again laid out perfectly for us, one, within the church, there were undeniable personal advantages to Urban II. Here was his chance to demonstrate his supreme spiritual authority in direct competition with Clement III. Two. Outside the church, there were also undeniable personal advantages to Urban II. Here was his chance to demonstrate his supreme secular authority in direct competition with the German Emperor, Henry IV. And three, there remains the distinct possibility that reclaiming Jerusalem wasn't just intended to be to the benefit of Western Christians in the broadest sense, but actually also to the papacy and to Urban himself, with the establishment of a papal state centred around the holy city itself. Okay, there we go, dear listener. That's the end of this three-part mini-series. Over the last three episodes, we've considered the arguments both in favour and against three key motivations Urban II may have had in calling the First Crusade in 1095. One, that he may have been intent on coming to the aid of the Byzantine Emperor, Alexios I Komnenos, and the Eastern Christian Brethren more broadly. Two, that he may have intended to bolster his own real-world political authority both within the Church and over the secular leaders of Western Europe. Three, that he might have been genuinely moved by a deep-seated piety to seek to end Europe's endemic warfare and reclaim Christ's patrimony in the East. It's not our intention here at Teach Medieval to provide you with the answer. That bit's up to you. However, we do hope listening to this mini-series has been of value to you in your learning whether that be in school or in college or at home in your own free time. And if it has, then that's solely down to the generosity and expertise of Associate Professor Nicholas Morton. Nick, thank you so much for the balanced and expert analysis you've provided over these last few episodes. We really, really appreciate
1: it. You're very welcome.
0: And that's it. Nick, I do hope you've enjoyed your time with us here and that you might consider returning at some point in the future to help us dissect another topic in a similarly wonderful fashion.
1: I'd be very happy to. and uh, Yes, absolutely superb.
0: And if you, dear listener, have enjoyed this mini-series and you like what we're doing here at Teach Medieval, then please do consider subscribing so that you don't miss a single episode. And please also consider leaving us a glowing review or a five-star rating and recommending us to absolutely everybody that you know. And that's it. Thanks for listening. I've been Ken, and this is Teach Medieval.